0: Let's look at First Peter chapter 2 this morning and our continuing study uh, that I have wanted to get to for a couple of weeks now. But uh, because of illness in our home and then the weather last week have not been able to get there. So I'm thankful to be able to get to that point uh, this morning. So First Peter chapter 2 this morning as we look at verses 13 to 17 Christianity in the civic square. The apostle Peter writes, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evil doers, and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Let's pray. Father, please help us now. Cause us to understand your mind as it's been revealed in these words. And gracious Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that we would not only understand with your help, but that we would be transformed by Your power. May these words have impact and lasting effect in our hearts. That we as the people of God would go forth having heard this text as a mighty army clothed in humility, understanding our role in the world around us so that Christ is magnified. We pray this... In your name, Lord Jesus, because you are worthy. Amen. Well, as we sit here this morning, it seems that the news grows every week, doesn't it? That makes us more and more aware of the fact that our faith, our Christ, is increasingly under a microscope in the world in which we live. And in places where it's not under a microscope, it may be that that faith and our Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ finds itself under an all-out assault and attack. Brothers and sisters, that's not new to us. It's the same as it was in Peter's day. And so as Peter writes this, Peter understands. Peter gets it. The, the, The recipients of Peter's letters get that, that they understand what we are beginning to see and experience in our own lives. And so again, as this morning in the first hour with the the church at Sardis, this particular passage is immediately understandable to us. It's needful for us as it was in their day. And so we can almost hear, can't we? Perhaps we've already heard it. I know I've heard it in the past number of days. Why are you Christians so strange? What, what is wrong with you people? Don't you know that, that you're on the wrong side of history with this issue or that issue? Why is it that you Christians don't just and fill in the blank? Why can't you just get along? Why can't you just go along with the program? And so from the classroom to the boardroom to the bedroom, biblical teaching and those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and follow those teachings are increasingly being pressed to defend our faith. And if you're not compelled to defend your faith more and more in these days and make the biblical case for the gospel of Jesus Christ, perhaps you ought to examine the faith that you profess because it is a clear opportunity at the time in which we live to define and defend and to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very clear that our culture at large feels no compulsion any longer to tip the hat in some way to a cultural Christianity of a bygone era. They no longer feel compelled to silently uh, put up with the supernatural truth claims of Scripture. Rather, the tide has turned around us and it's turning quickly that it is now in vogue not to simply tolerate it or accept it at a cultural level, but instead to question at best, challenge more likely, or the growing possibility of trying to discredit and destroy the voice of truth from Scripture. So much so to the point that some Christian churches are even trying to figure out how they might reimagine Christianity with new and less offensive terminology. We're trying to figure out how we can become, in some sectors, more appealing to the world around us. Churches wanting to know how they might seek worldly approbation and approval through any number of compromises that they might make to the spirit of the age. And so in that spirit and in that arena and in that environment, you and I as Bible-believing Christians are called upon increasingly to offer up a defense of our faith. A defense, an apologetic to defend what we believe and to promote what we believe. And so let me ask you a question to probe your own thinking. When the moment comes that your faith has come into contradiction with the philosophy of the world, how will you defend your Christian faith? Will it be through science on the battleground of creation and archaeological proof? Will it be through history and the proof of the Bible's accuracy? Will it be experiential through the proof of the gospel's change of your own mind and your own heart and your own life? How will you defend your faith? And are you ready to defend it at each and every turn? Different Christians have been gifted in different ways and they may approach this differently. Some have been gifted scientifically. Some have been gifted with a very glaring testimonies of God's grace in which they present as a defense of the Christian faith. But every one of us has an apologetic approach that we must adopt and it probably isn't what the world or we even want to hear, but it is what Peter says this morning. We all possess the command and the opportunity to demonstrate an apologetic to the world that goes against our very nature. And that apologetic is the apologetic of submission. Peter begins this section, not only in verses 13 through 17, but all the way down through this and the coming chapter, he speaks of submission. Submission is the most unnatural tendency of every sinner born on the face of the earth. No one enjoys in their flesh submitting to anything. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and how we want to do it as often as we want to do it and so submission becomes a very difficult thing and yet peter says that as christians living in a strange land living by a strange ethic that submission ought to be our greatest apologetic it is what sets us apart as christians and so Peter takes the idea of submission here, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13, and systematically moves through every arena of life using the apologetic of submission for the Christians to defend their faith. I said earlier that submission is not something that we enjoy. Let me, let me restate that. That wasn't quite strong enough. I'm usually guilty of overstatement, but in this case, I understated. it. Submission is not difficult. Submission is impossible. It's not that we don't like to do it. It's that we can't do it in our flesh. And that, brothers and sisters, most clearly then demonstrates the veracity and the truth and the power of the gospel when people who were, previously indisposed and incapable of submission, now become a submitted people. Whether it's in the civic arena, the workplace, or the home, submission becomes the great evidence that the gospel has changed us and made us able to do something we could not do before. And that is to humble ourselves and place ourselves In a submitted position. Our pride is deeply rooted brothers and sisters. I think you would concur with that. Our independence. Our stubbornness. Is part of our fallen humanity. That is so deeply rooted. That this change of submission. Is a glaring difference in believers. But I want you to notice something this morning. As you look at the text of the word of God. That Peter does not just jump in at any random place, to deal with the subject of submission. Nor does Peter begin in the, the, the least likely to be seen places of the home and deal with submission and work outward from there. No, Peter goes straight for the jugular. Peter starts, and we are feeling this as Christians more and more in our own context, that submission in the civic arena is indeed the most difficult place. And yet it is still a necessary place. Why? Submitting to the people and the powers that be are increasingly obvious that we are submitting to pagan leadership. People who don't know God and people who don't care to know God. We are called to submit to those who at times would even persecute us for our faith. That's not easy to sell. And you certainly can't sell that to an unregenerate person who says, hey, listen, you need to learn to submit, even though it may mean things don't go very well for you. Well, I'm not doing that. Don't sign me up for that class. And yet Peter says that's where we start. It's difficult because those who rule in the civic arena wield the power of society. And yet Peter says, as a Christian, there is a call To learn submission in the civic square. I want you to notice those calls with me this morning. Each call is followed by an explanation. The first call is a call simply to submit. Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. That's the explanation. To every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him. For the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Without preamble, Peter jumps into the subject at hand. With clarifying bluntness, Peter issues that imperative statement, be submitted, we could say it this way, subject yourselves, station yourselves, or place yourself under these people. Now what is meant by submission? Because we're all human in here. We hear that word, and we've been told that that's a dirty word in the culture in which we live, which prizes independence and rebellion. What do we mean by submission? Well, first of all, in the Christian worldview, in the Christian ethic, it is not a weak or menial servitude. Peter is not saying here grovel in mindless conformity to every human institution. He's not saying that you don't think about what you're doing. No, rather it is an informed, understanding act of the will to submit ourselves with the understanding that submission in this case is done with a higher purpose. And notice what that purpose is. For the Lord's sake. We're not doing this to make our life easier. We're not doing this to make our lives better. We are doing this for Christ's sake. We are doing this to give the right opinion of God himself. Peter says, in this case, we will open up with submission to intentional, willful, placing oneself under of human governments. In Peter's case, it is the Roman government. But notice that Peter makes no distinction here of the government type that he is speaking of. He simply says place yourself in submission to human institutions for the Lord's sake. Why? Because we learn from Romans chapter 13 that human government is ordained by whom? God. God is the creator of human government. Man Man may have a variety of different types of government. In Peter's case and in Paul's case, the Roman government was... Uh, a a mixture of a dictatorship and and a senatorial rule. And so as Christians, we understand that that this is from God ultimately, that, that the civic square is not something that man dreamed of, but rather God gave, and man, if it is going south, it is because man has corrupted it. So Peter says, for the Lord's sake, submit to that institution which he has created for his own explicit purposes. And he spells those out here just as he does in Romans chapter 13. To punish evildoers and praise those who do right. It's quite telling that human government often because of the fallenness and depravity of human nature, begins to add to the very simple reason God created human institution of government. We begin to take on things that God never intended human government to take on. And so Peter doesn't delve into all of the nuance of that, but he simply says, understand these are God-given institutions that you are required for the Lord's sake to submit yourself to. He's not commending as well any particular form of government. He's not saying that there's one that's better than another. He's simply telling these people, whatever place you find yourself in and whatever system you find yourself under, you need to, with God's help, submit to that and abide by it. Now that has caused us, brothers and sisters, as Christians, to be able to think coherently and logically. Again, as I said earlier, that this is not blind obedience. This is not groveling obedience. We must think about the type of law and the type of the rule of law that we are under and that we are to submit to. And admittedly, it was different in Peter's day than it is in America in 2021. And God gave us a brain to be able to think through those differences. And with Scripture informing our mind, we need to be able to do that. It's not blind obedience. It is not not unquestioning, unquestioning fealty to human government, but neither is it a spirit of independence and rebellion. It is seeking as best we can to know what the rule of law in our land is and to submit to the rule of law it's thoughtful compliance to and service to that which is instituted by God wherever, listen to me, this is key, it is submission to that which is instituted by God wherever we can. Because as we are learning, there are places that we can't. And it is imperative for Christians to learn the difference. We look for places where, everywhere that we can to submit to the governing authorities. Why? For the Lord's sake, to demonstrate the very character of Jesus Christ. And I find two very disturbing trends, I think, in the church in America and the day that we live in, and I'll just say America because that's the context that we live in. One is to just accept everything that is said without regard to a higher authority The other is to reject everything that is said because we don't like what we perceive to be rightly so many times as corrupt governing structures. Neither of those is a good option. And so we must think carefully and prayerfully and biblically about what that needs to look like in our own life. Peter's context extends from a king, the highest and most controlling position to the local governor's office sent to the lower courts and the lower arenas to carry out the laws of the king or other governing bodies or documents. It isn't the form that's important. It's the concept that is important. Governing authorities. And I'll just say for us again, seeking to live out a God-honoring life in this world, we need to understand that our governing authority has not been placed in a human or humans, but in documents, in a rule of law. And so there will be many things that will be said by rulers in such a situation that will command Christians to do things that Christians cannot do and that our own laws do not even support. And that, I don't think, is what Peter is saying. Well, look, they, I know what the law says, but you got to do it anyway, because they said it. No, they're out of their lane, but we must stay in our lane. But where we can be in their lane, we need to be. For the Lord's sake. The Jews, in particular, have a bad track record with this. And remember, Peter is writing to a group of people who had a very large percentage of Jewish people in their midst. They... The Jews oftentimes would refuse to pay taxes to Caesar. And Jesus had an answer for that. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. The Jews would have these revolts, like the revolt of the Maccabees, and uh, the, the, the revolt at Masada and other places that were not altogether a good example of what Christians should look like. Christians were to be different. And that which is in the realm of Caesar government to ask in conformity to Christ's rule is to be submitted to by Christians wherever we can. But I want you to notice that qualifying phrase. There is a higher authority than the humans themselves. It is for the Lord's sake. We must submit for Him who is the highest of rulers not just because lower rulers Say that we should. We do it for the Lord. Higher than the king. He is higher than the governor. He is greater than a senatorial body. He's greater than a constitution. He's greater than a law code. And so for the Lord's sake, we do these things. Peter does spell out. I said he didn't completely spell out everything that needs to be said about the matter. But he does spell out what Paul Spells out in Romans 13. Again, why do we have human government? We have human government for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Very simple. Very simple. From a Christian worldview, we must understand that is government's primary responsibility. And by the way, Christian, it's up to us to inform our leaders as to why they exist and what they exist for. It's time for Christians to take up the mantle of informing those who are servants of God and reminding them that they are servants of God. With a narrow focus, with limited powers granted to them by God, and that they will give an account to God for how they wielded those powers. I'm warning you, that will get you in trouble. But it needs to be said. From a biblical standpoint, it is the the responsibility of Christians not only to understand, but to call our government officials to that right understanding for their own good and for their own ultimate blessing. And so we need to pray that God would give us opportunities to do that, to remind them about why they exist. Because in getting outside of that reality for them, they will find themselves in difficult and even dangerous places at times. And so our prayer for them should be that they would understand the work of God and the, the, the giving of their office by God. They must act out what God has ordained for them to do. Nothing more and nothing less. So we submit as much as we Can, as often as we can for the Lord's sake, to governing authorities, to human institutions. Why? To give the right opinion of him, to point others to him, to say, look what Christ does. Christ takes a bunch of stiff-necked, rebellious sinners and he transforms them so that they can submit in the civic arena, in the workplace, and in the home. Sinners can't do this, but Christ has changed us. Look at what God has done. Look at what God has done. And and, and again, this is almost anecdotal. It's amazing. The day in which we live, how clarifying it's become. Christians are not the ones creating carnage and chaos. Christians are the ones who too many times are too quiet and we sit back too often and don't say anything. Why? Because Christ has changed us and we almost live a blind, submissive life. Where we need to take a more vocal and active role in that. And by the way, that's not unsubmissive. It is for the Lord's sake, therefore we must say what the Lord has said. And reminding them of those things is in line with that very purpose. To pray for and remind and to speak out about those things. But again, with that said, Peter certainly understands the place of a Christian to comply with the highest authority is of premier importance. Let me say that another way. Submission to government ends where it contradicts obedience to God. Where we can, when the government demands, when civil authorities demand. Submission that would require our disobedience to Christ. Their end ends their claim on our submission. We must obey Christ. We must follow Christ. Even though it then goes against and directly contradicts. What civil authorities might say. I want you to go back to the book of Acts with me. You may know where I'm headed with this. But in Peter's own life, in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, we find two examples of this. And I want you to think this morning with me as we prayed for Pastor Coates in Canada earlier. As we think about church history and men like John Bunyan who were imprisoned, and much like the current situation with Pastor Coates, they're told that the condition of their release, they can walk free if they promise one thing not to preach again. Well, that has biblical precedent. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13 through 21, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with him, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. They were working miracles, proving their gospel claim. And they, we cannot deny it, they say, verse 17, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. What name? The name of Christ. And when they had summoned them and they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot Stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Why? It's dishonest. It's dishonest. You know, you can tell a lie in more than one way. You can either outright tell the lie or you can keep your mouth shut when the truth could be told. And Peter and John said, we can't be silent. We know what has happened. And for us to do so would be grossly negligent on our part. Verse 21, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. Well, I got a point. On account of the people, they were afraid of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Fast forward to chapter 5, verse 16. Here are our resident troublemakers, if you will. Who would later write about being submissive to civil authorities. And yet finding themselves in that place as Christians. With a decision to either be faithful to God or to men. In verse 16 of chapter 5. Also people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together. Bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. He didn't say write a letter. He said go tell them. And go tell them plainly. Don't cut corners. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely. Quite securely. And the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came out and reported to them The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. The very thing they were in here for, they're doing. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Let's be honest. That's the reason every governing authority Wants to silence preaching. They don't like the accountability of Christ's blood. Don't bring that on us. Don't say we're the ones who crucified him. Because remember Peter has already had a track record of very bluntly telling people that. In Acts chapter 2. This man whom you crucified. They don't like that. They don't like the, the condemnation. They don't like the guilt. But Peter, verse 29, the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death. There he goes again, by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. says the man who says submit for the Lord's sake to every governing authority. A man who by all human appearances did the very opposite of what he says. So was Peter contradicting himself? No, Peter was faithful. Peter, Peter was faithful in that he did everything he did for the Lord's sake. He submitted where he could. He lived under submission to Rome where he could. But there comes times, as Peter and John found out, where you must live truly for the Lord's sake, even when Rome doesn't want to hear it. Or when Israel doesn't want to hear it. We may not ever, brothers and sisters, we may not ever obey civil magistrates when it contradicts God but we must always obey them when it does not. Those are the realities for us in the world in which we live. Again, this submission is not weak. It is transformed. It has the power to deny what we want, the power to push back. It has the the power to deny our flesh and to live submittedly, but it also has the power to speak out for truth when that is called for because we are more submitted to God than we are to men in that case and so Peter says submit but he doesn't mean blind obedience he doesn't mean unquestioning fealty because well Romans 13 well Rome, You know, how many of you grow tired of that well Romans 13 you got to obey Well, my question to to too many professing Christians today is, where does Romans 13 stop? When when do we quit throwing out that unthought-through excuse to just make life easy? And when do we obey God rather than men? It's something we have to pray about, but it's something that we must absolutely at times do. But then notice what Peter goes on to say. He's not only are you to submit... But you are called to, to silence them. He says in verse 15, For such is the will of God that by doing right, by, with wisdom, in prayer, on the basis of Scripture, with humility, and brothers and sisters, even when we must defy for the Lord's sake what we are being told on a human level, that still must be done with humility. Not a brash spirit. But a bold and humble spirit. A sorrowful spirit even that we are forced to live in that place. But Peter says for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence. The the word is literally to muzzle. The ignorance of foolish men. You are going to put a muzzle on the foolishness of what they are calling you to do the opponents of god readily accuse you and i as christians of being out of touch and being out of step and yet peter says in our submission we we silence them so many times in their foolishness our submission to christ silences them it literally means to put a muzzle on men who lack prudence who have no good judgment in their own. They are senseless in what they are saying. But Peter says, when you can and where you can, when you submit to them, that silences them. That sobers them to see a Christian respond in such a humble way. And our life for Christ then silences, it contradicts their moral Failings and their lack of moral uprightness. That doesn't mean they won't accuse you. But just remember this, their accusations are a result of their reprobation. What they accuse you of, and Isaiah says that in Isaiah chapter 5, Woe when men call evil good and good evil. When that happens, it is the judgment of God. And this goes back to Romans 1, that they, those who deny God are bound up in foolishness. They are actually worshiping the thing created rather than the one who created it. Where does that come from? Because they know truth and they choose to suppress it. And when you suppress truth, it drives you mad. Do you wonder, Christian? Where the perversity and the insanity has come from in our world, I'll tell you where it comes from. Suppressing the knowledge of truth that is as clear as that blue sky. That it is as clear as creation. That it is as clear as the revelation of God in His Word. When you suppress that, it bounds you up in foolishness. And Peter says, there's an antidote to that. It is your submission where you can will silence and refute and rebuke such foolishness. It's actually stronger than that. Again, I typically overstate. I I understate again. What Peter is referring to is a judicial hardness that has come over them. It's not just that they're foolish. It is that they are willfully so, and God has hardened them in that. It isn't Ivy League intelligence talking. It is God rejecting senselessness that is speaking. And Peter says you silence that by your submission. It's up to us brothers and sisters by our good conduct and our submission where we can to the rule of law which is our governing authority. Submission to the rule of law that we are to literally take away every argument of a coherent kind. This doesn't mean they're going to stop with their accusation, but when they accuse, it will be meritless. This doesn't even mean that the world will find it meritless. Listen. There may come a time when everybody you know, humanly speaking, condemns you. But if God exonerates you, it doesn't matter what men say. When we study... The history of the church, the apostles, the Puritans, the reformers, great men who have taken great, bold, and decisive action for Christ. They have never been spoken of well by the world. But they did it for not the approval of the world, but of God. And so Peter is is calling his readers to that reality saying live by your life as much as you can to silence them so that it is meritless before God. At least God won't condemn you for an unsubmissive life where you could have been submissive. And it will silence your opponents. And then he closes with a call to a better life. Verse 16, act as free men. Here's the good life. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Hey, listen, we've been saved from our sin. That's our glory, brothers and sisters. We are not bound by anything. Christ has freed us. There's no law condemning us anymore. We are truly free men. But it doesn't mean that we are men and women with no law. It doesn't mean that we can live then how ever we please even though we are the freest of all free men the battle against sin and captivity to the law which only condemned us and which was won at the cross by the death of jesus that battle has been won the last shot has been fired and we've been declared innocent by christ no more war with god no more death to be feared And so onward we march as free men and Peter is warning them like, look, don't use that freedom as an excuse to live however you want. It's not. You you still have a responsibility to live as though you've been freed from sin. To us and to these people, Peter says as free men, now you can actually live free. You can live free from sinful, fleshly desires To respond in rebellion rather than submission. You're you're, you're free. You don't have to do that anymore. You you can actually be free to submit where you can. As Christians freed by Christ. We do not turn our freedom then into more rebelliousness. For which Christ died. Does that make sense? If Christ died to forgive it. Now that we say we're free from it. Why would we run back into more of it? And Peter's saying don't do that. Don't, Don't live a. A life that is that chaotic. But do what Jesus did. After His resurrection, after winning the battle against sin, did Jesus go and indulge in sin? Did Jesus then become rebellious to the will of the Father? No. So we are to pattern our life after Him. We should use our freedom then as a a tool for good, not an excuse for evil. Peter says, act as the free men that you are. Don't use your freedom to cover up your bad behavior, but rather enslave yourself to God. You're not enslaved to any man. You're not enslaved to the law. But rather, enslave yourselves to God. That you might be a faithful and accurate witness, an effective witness for God. The righteous rebellion of the church against the state has never been for evil, but always for God-glorifying goodness Which the state at the time is seeking to suppress. That's one thing. But what Peter's dealing with this regular, ordinary rule of law. Hey, I'm a free Christian. I can drive a hundred through a school zone. No, you can't. Why? Because for the good of those around you, and because the government says you need to drive 20 miles an hour, Drive 20 miles an hour. Well, I'm free in Christ. You're not getting it. You don't understand. It's not what this is about. Don't use your freedom to stick your finger in the eye of governing authorities. Why? We're slaves to God. Would Jesus do that? Did, did Christ view Himself in that realm? In that way? No. We're slaves to God. Therefore, there is a certain ethos, an ethic by which we live our lives. And Peter says, here's what it looks like, verse 17. Honor all people. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood, especially the Christians. Love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God, though. And honor the king. Simply stated, these ways add to a. A joyful life, a full life, a beneficial life when we honor all men. What does it mean to honor all men? Simply stated, we could just say this. All men are to have the same value placed upon them that God places upon them. God honors His creation. God honors His image in all people. Therefore, we ought to do the same. From the womb to the tomb, we are to honor all people whole, and those with handicaps. Every language, every tribe, every ethnicity, all are created in the image of God and must be treated without class distinction, Peter is saying. Oh boy. Peter just landed a broadside to identity and class warfare. All men are to be honored as being created in the image of God. No divides of any kind. Notice Peter. No divides. This ends class warfare because we are all made in the image of God. And again, this is an area where the church needs to stand and and speak up. And you need to be informed, Christian. You need to read. You need to study primarily the Word of God, but you need to study other things that help you make the case for this. The, the ignorance of foolish men is on display when you remove God from the consciousness of people and instead substitute an anti-God system like Marxism or Darwinianism And tell them to live life from that vantage point, which seeks to divide everything and treat everyone differently, and then say, hey, let's all have unity. Doesn't work. So the church must stand up and call those things out. It says, no, in order to honor all men, we must view God as supreme and as everything coming from Him. That's our response. To the world that seeks to divide. No, Paul says, honor. Or Peter says, honor all men. Treat them with dignity as being from God. The word here in the next command is keep loving the brotherhood. It's not simply love the brotherhood. It's keep loving them. You love them, keep loving them. Expand on that brotherly love. This was critical For the people in Peter's day. And it's becoming even more so for us in our day. That we as Christians are going to have to really love each other. And I know we've said. Oh I love you. Hey brother. Hey sister. I love you in the Lord. you know, It's going to come down to some really tough love soon. And we as Christians need to keep loving the brotherhood. Not letting little things come among us. That would divide us. The body of Christ. But to love through that. And to demonstrate sacrificial love for one another. These early Christians had that testimony. Acts chapter 2, again, when you get to the end of that chapter, you find people selling things in order to feed each other. Why does that happen? Because of Christ's work in us the same way that we're able to submit to civic authorities, to the magistrates, to the governors, to the kings. Because Christ has so worked in us that, that we... Have that heart of love and care for one another. Peter says, hey, listen, honor all men, treat all men with the honor that is due to them because they are made in the image of God and keep loving each other. You're going to need each other. But notice the third one. And this is where it really all hangs. Peter says this fear God. Fear God. Fear is reserved for God. Notice. Notice. We're to submit and to honor the authorities, but we are to fear only God. That is a level of of reverence. That is a level of honor. That's a level of obedience and response that only belongs to the Lord. The church of Jesus Christ must recapture that lost element of the fear of God in our lives. We've been raised to fear nothing. To be told that we're self-sufficient. That we need nothing. When in reality, the book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All wisdom. Not just spiritual wisdom, but all wisdom. Fools despise that wisdom and instruction. Why? Because they despise the fear of the Lord. Peter says, You're to fear God, to tremble before Him. Not a king, not a crowd, not a court. Not anything else. You're to fear only God. And the ignorance of men who refuse to fear God results in greater ign- ignorance. Then he says, oh, and by the way, let's, begin where, let's end where we began. Honor the king. Show deference to the king. Show honor to the king. But fear God. Fear God. Brothers and sisters, how do we honor the king? Well, we honor the king because we first fear God. And that enables us, it frees us then to honor the king with highest human reverence, with deference to him and to his office that God has created. But we can't do that like we should unless we first fear God. And when we fear God, that divide of where we can and can't submit becomes more clear. We see more clearly, we can't do this, but we can do this. Because we know who God is, we know the character of God. And by the way, we're not afraid then either to defy where defiance is needed. Why? We have a higher authority. We have a higher calling. We have a higher accountability. We may we not enjoy having to say, you know what? We're going to preach anyway. But I fear God more than I fear you. I'm sorry. That's the way it has to be. We're going to assemble. We're going to worship. We're going to meet. We're going to do what we have to do. We're, we're going to share Christ wherever we can. We're not going to pull back. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have to say what God says in the laws of nature itself. God created Men and women. God hates abortion. That's not unsubmissive. That is ultimate submission. But it's done even then in a spirit of humility. And it's done in a prophetic rebuking way to the earthly authorities who deny it. That's actually submission to them. We're actually teaching. We're actually helping them by telling them the truth. That's not hateful. It's not rebellious. And we do it for the Lord's sake. We do it to expand the kingdom in the civic square. We do it for the glory of God. These are tough lessons. And I don't stand here this morning with clear cut answers on every situation. Oh, what about this? And what about that? Those are situations like the apostles, the Lord will give us the wisdom we need when we ask in the hour. But we need to prepare ourselves that that we are called first and foremost to be submitted people first to God, then the authorities that He has appointed and we submit wherever we can as much as we can. But it isn't blind. It's informed. It's led by the Spirit of God. It's saturated in the wisdom of God. And we do so for His glory and the good of all. Them and us. May the Lord help us. May the Lord help us to have the courage and the wisdom to apply these kinds of passages that are not easy but are so necessary in the day in which we're living. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kingship over us. We're thankful, Father, that nothing in this world is outside of your rule and your reign. We ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom. Because we have none of our own, we ask, Lord, that you would give us a tenderness and a spirit of humility to submit and to pray for, and yes, even to challenge the civil magistrates, the governors, the kings. But Lord, help our fear of you, God. Help our fear of you as King of all kings, Lord of all lords, governor of all governors, the prince of peace himself. May you be our highest rule. May you be our highest authority. May we submit to you. May we lean on you for wisdom. Help us, Father, in this day. And Father, we pray not only for ourselves, but we pray for faithful Christians all over our country, all over the world in this time, that they would remain faithful to You and that You would give them that same spirit of wisdom. And Lord, where we must, give us courage. Not in a braggadocious, proud, or rebellious way, but in a way that simply recognizes You are the King of kings and we are calling all to confess that with us. So help us, Lord, we pray. We're dependent upon You. We ask this in your son's name, amen.